Well, hello, Upper Room. It's so good to be with you today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kate Tompkins. I'm on staff here at Upper Room. I get to work with some of the youngest, most fun, cutest kids um, at our church and our awesome youth, well, and their parents and our leaders. So like pretty much 90% of our church, um, you're all super great. And I today, instead of working with them, get to preach. One thing that I really love to do. And um, I'm quite excited to be here and be able to share with you some of the things that I feel um, God has put on my heart to share with this community today. Uh, we have been in um, a six-week, we're in a six-week series on the book of Philippians. We're in week five today. And as we've been journeying through this book together as a community, we've been centering on the theme of unity. As Pastor Tony wrote in his um, blog post a couple weeks ago, what we mean by unity is this. It means together. It means connected. It means partnership. It means co-laboring with Jesus, for Jesus, and because of Jesus. And the picture of unity that Paul gives us in the book of Philippians is actually a picture of friendship. It's about mutual giving and receiving. This book is a book about Paul's deep love, care, and concern for the, for the Philippian church and for their deep love, care, and concern for him. This relationship is one that has a key marker of true friendship that stands out above all the rest. If you've been following along with us online, through the blog, or even reading through Philippians in our community Bible reading, then you may have noticed that Paul and his church friends are enduring a lot of tough stuff. They are enduring a lot of hardship, and they are enduring them together as one. That's the true picture of friendship that this book gives us. People who will stick by each other through thick and thin, good and bad. And so when we talk about this topic of suffering, I want to clarify a little bit what we're talking about because some people might think about the word suffering or hardship in different ways. So let me start first by telling you what I don't mean by suffering. You know, when I'm talking about Paul and the Philippian church suffering, I'm not talking about how they're stuck in traffic when they're in a rush to get home. I'm not talking about how their kids are in a really bad bit of fighting with each other and it's super stressful and annoying. You know, Paul didn't even have any kids, at least not biological ones. They aren't waiting in a long line at the grocery store when they're rushed. They're not even stressed from an intense week at work. These things are tough for sure. But they aren't what we're talking about when we're talking about suffering. What I mean by that word is actually undergoing a prolonged state of distress, pain, or hardship. I'm talking about deep stuff, deep pain. Not just cuts and bruises or scrapes or minor inconveniences. I'm talking about the kind of things that make your heart heavy, that weigh you down that leave you feeling more than just a little bit hopeless. What this meant for Paul and the Philippian church was actually persecution. They had come to faith. They were excited about what Jesus was doing in their lives, how he had saved them, what he was doing through them, and they were sharing it with anyone and everyone who would listen. And they were in trouble for it. Because in an empire where the leader of the time was considered the Lord, um, Calling someone else Lord was not well received. So the Philippians are living in fear. They're being rejected. And they had to be very careful about what they did and where they met and who they met with. And meanwhile, Paul, I mean, we've heard a lot about his story throughout this whole series. He is in the slammer. 
He's in jail, in prison, locked up, and along with that, probably also really hungry. Because back then, the good old government did not feed you three square meals a day. Your friends and family had to bring you food and water. And because Paul was an enemy of the state, it meant that anyone who brought him stuff could potentially be associated with him. And so even his friends bringing him things was a risky business. So I can bet that though his friends were faithful, as we'll soon see, Paul was probably also very hungry and potentially might have also been suffering some physical violence. Maybe he was being abused either by the hands of the guards or even the people who were sharing his communal holding cell. Paul had it really rough. Paul was suffering. And while we're here in Canada, we weren't really facing this type of persecution or suffering. We too can relate because we suffer hardship every single day. For some of us, it's physical suffering, like Paul. Maybe we're ill or in pain. We're experiencing poverty. But then even those who are rich aren't necessarily experiencing prosperity. Even where people have lots of things, there can be other types of suffering. There might be mental suffering, mental illness, depression, anxiety, despair. There might be spiritual um, suffering like Paul is experiencing with op opposition or persecution. There could be emotional suffering where we have heartbreak, distress, where we feel estranged from loved ones. We feel isolated or alone or just distant from loved ones. And there can also be something called structural suffering. This is just, you know, the way the world sometimes tends to work against us and it's wrong, like racism, sexism, or just general oppression. And so it's kind of sad to admit that all of this suffering, this prolonged and heavy kind, it's pretty universal. It's not unique to any one person. No one has the corner on suffering, though sometimes we might want to try. Most people in the world are going through hardship to one degree or another because it's part of actually our common humanity. No one is immune. But what the book of Philippians shows us is that how we respond to suffering can either push us towards unity or away from it. It can bond us together or it can isolate us. And oftentimes going through life's intense difficulties can be extremely lonely. We all long to have friends that we can turn to in hard times. But the reality is that often our hard times actually make us feel more alone instead of drawing us into community. And so even though we share this common human experience, we often let it isolate us and ultimately divide us instead of letting it bond us together. But why? And I think it's not because the difficulties or the suffering themselves are actually isolating. Um, we've actually heard that suffering can draw us together potentially, but Paul's story shows us that the difference that is made, whether it draws us together or pulls us apart, is actually in how we approach our suffering. So he, uh, through his story, highlights um, some limiting beliefs or things that maybe actually might contribute to how we respond to suffering and why it isolates us instead of bringing us together. And when I was reading through this book, one of the first thing I noticed is that one of the beliefs we can have about suffering is that suffering is all bad, um, that it's not good. This is actually a really prevalent belief in our society today. Suffering is kind of accepted by many of us as like the worst thing that could happen to you. And I'm not saying it's not hard, but actually in our culture, we tend to treat suffering like we treat sin. We, don't, we do everything we can to mitigate it, to avoid it, to bring it to an end. 
And I know that suffering is not how things are supposed to be. And in fact, that Jesus said one day he will return and all suffering and pain and tears will cease. But church, we need to ask ourselves if suffering really is that horrible. Is it that really there's no good at all that can come from it? Is it totally bad? Because if we buy into that belief that trials in life are totally bad, then our tendency might be to become bitter about our suffering, especially when life hits us really hard. It can lead us to shaming and blaming other people and especially God for the bad things that are happening to us. And it can make us want to get out of any situation we're in however fast we can. This might sometimes lead us into something we call escapism, where we use things to uh, numb ourselves or distance ourselves from what we're going through. It might be as minor, seemingly minor, as binging TV or eating our emotions, or it could be something like addiction to substances like alcohol or drugs, or even um, getting into a lot of sex and pornography. We often become addicted to these things because they help us escape and they ease our pain. But ultimately, what this leads to is isolation. When we're bitter and we tend to judge other people who we think have it better in us, when we compare our pain to other people and we feel indignant that they would complain about such a minor thing, it isolates us and pushes us away from other people. Or maybe we don't even do those things, but instead we hide our pain because we don't want people to know that we're suffering. Suffering is weakness. It's bad. It's not good. So we don't want people to know that we're suffering. We don't want them to feel sorry for us. We don't want to be seen as weak or needy. And so we pretend that everything is fine, even while we're kind of dying inside. I've personally done all, like, all these things many times. Um, I have believed the worst of my suffering. I have let myself run down the trail of bitterness and anger and contempt for other people's suffering. I have tried to escape it. I have believed that my pain made me weak and tried to run away from it or hide it from other people. And guys, I want you to take my word for uh, I want you to take my word for it. None of this made things better. It actually made things worse. It made me more lonely. It made me more sad, and it made me feel further away from God and others all because I thought the worst of my pain. Now, some of us might approach suffering that way, but others are actually on the other end of the spectrum. They actually might think that suffering isn't bad, it's, it's good. And you might put your hand up right now and say like, hey girl, that is not me. I do not think that. I'm in the former. I do not think suffering is good. But let me try to highlight for you a few ways this subtly actually shows up in the church. I would say the most common way that we um, show that we actually believe that suffering is good is through shame and guilt. It's believing I deserve this suffering. It's thinking that our pain and sorrow is somehow a natural consequence of our actions. And I know that sometimes we sin and our sin does have consequences. And sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. But Jesus makes it very clear that most suffering is actually not a direct result of our sin. And in fact, if you look at Paul and the Philippians, you can definitely tell their suffering is not as a result of sin. It's actually as a result of them doing good. They were spreading the word of Jesus, but they were still suffering. Their suffering isn't punishment. But some of us sometimes believe that we need to feel a sufficient amount of guilt or pain for who we are or what we've done. But guys, that is not the way of Jesus. His way is forgiveness, not guilt. 
It's freedom, not shame. Another way this thinking can show up in the church is sometimes by being proud of our suffering. By it's good. Oh, look at me and what I'm enduring for God. He must be so proud of me. And so even if we don't really like our suffering, we think that it brings out something amazing in us, something to be admired. And some people even like to heap this suffering on themselves. I'm sure there's no one like this in our church, but I have heard of some Christians who would rather know um, everyone know what they're against rather than what they're for. And they actually pry themselves when people hate them because they feel like they're standing up for God's truth. But I don't think that's quite the way of Jesus either because do you want to know what Jesus was for? He was for people. He was for the crowds. He was for sinners. Religious people, When you want to know what Jesus was against, religious people who were proud about the religiosity. And Paul talks about this earlier in Philippians as well, about how followers of Jesus are meant to be marked by gentleness, not harshness. So these approaches to suffering can also be isolating because they push others away from us mostly, and they make us feel superior, all of which keeps us from experiencing true friendship and community. And then the third response that we might have towards suffering is neither of these other two. It's actually just that suffering is nothing at all. It's an illusion. I don't think I have to explain to you how isolating this attitude could be. All I need to have you do is try to recall a time when maybe someone else didn't acknowledge your pain or your distress when they blew you off when you tried to tell them about what you were going through, or tried to placate you with fancy advice and those feel-good Bible verses, when they didn't try to understand you but basically just told you to forget about it, life's good, just be happy. But I know none of you have ever done that. I would certainly never, except I do all the time. Because what that sort of attitude does for us, the person who's trying to help the other person a little bit, is it makes us feel good for a second or two. It makes us feel that I just did something good. I helped my friend or maybe even I just dodged a tough conversation. I didn't really want to go there. But in the end, what it does is it really creates dif- distance between friends. It makes the person who is vulnerable about their struggle feel crazy or misunderstood, confused, or even stupid. Pretending that suffering doesn't exist or that it really isn't that bad is dangerous and it can ruin friendships. But wait a minute, you might say. We just read Philippians 4 and doesn't it seem like that's basically what Paul is saying here? I mean, let's take a look at that again. Paul says this starting in chapter 4 verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So isn't Paul saying here that it's mind over matter, that his situation really isn't so bad? Not really. If you scroll back all the way to Philippians chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul did say that a lot of good has come out of his suffering and imprisonment. More people have come to know Jesus, but really he wants to get out of there. Either by being put to death so that he can go home to be with Jesus, his one true love, and not have to suffer anymore, or by being released so that he can be with his people again and continue to build into their faith. 
Paul's response to suffering is not that it's all good or all bad or that it simply doesn't matter. His path is not avoidance or ignorance. So what is it? Well, it's all of it and none of it all at the same time. It's actually a totally different way of approaching suffering. It's the way of Jesus. And if you read carefully, you'll see that Paul lays out for us through his life example, his own kind of threefold approach to suffering. So the first step is to never suffer alone. Paul says over and over again that what has gotten him through this ordeal is the support of the Philippian church. No other community has supported him like they have. And he is so grateful because while Paul has been physically isolated in prison, he's been relationally um, connected through the relationships he has with this church. The friendship between Paul and the Philippians and their willingness to suffer alongside him and to support him, even while enduring their own hardship, has helped Paul to bear his difficult circumstances. In this story, no, one's no one person's situation was paramount. Suffering wasn't being compared, it was being shared. And this created a special bond between Paul and the Philippians, so much so that Paul calls the Philippians his joy and his crown. This community brings Paul a joy that goes beyond circumstances. And I know some of you in this room have friends like that. Friends who you call when life tears you up because they are a source of joy in your life. Friends whose love and support gives you a cause to rejoice like Paul does because you are so grateful that, you, um, that they are in your life. And that's because we need each other. We need each other to make our loads seem lighter. And that's not just for the person who is going through all this tough stuff. Did you catch in this passage that Paul actually says, even though he cannot repay the Philippian church and meet all their needs, he can't give back to them what they have given to him. He knows that God will meet all their needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, when we give ourselves away for the sake of others, God can restore. That's not why we do it. But how cool is it to know that when we share in each other's sufferings, everyone can benefit. Everyone can be blessed. There's a mutuality of giving and receiving. Sharing in troubles is never one-sided. So we all need friends who can crack a joke when we're sad. Friends who maybe they don't know exactly what to say, but they can listen to us and give us hugs. Friends who stand by us even when things get rough. But how do we find these types of friends? Well, I think we've got to look. And what I mean by that is if you are someone who is struggling through some painful stuff, don't hide away. Share your struggle. Don't isolate yourself. Don't believe the lie that your circumstance is something that you need to be ashamed of or that no one else could possibly understand. Don't let bitterness keep you from reaching out. You need to share your life with us so that we can be the community that God is calling us to be. We need you to give us the chance to be your friend and a good one. And I know that that can be hard. It's really risky to put yourself out there, especially if you've been burned. And I know that because I've been burned a lot. When I was in grade 12, um, I went to visit my grandma with my mom. Uh, we call her Oma because I'm Dutch. And my Oma had um, a strange bout of some mental illness. 
And when I went to visit her with my mom, she was saying a lot of weird and really scary stuff. And as a 17-year-old, I was quite afraid um, of just what my grandma might do because she was saying, like I said, just weird things. And I didn't really know how to process it except for a few days later to talk through it with one of my good friends. And so we're driving to the mall. She's in the driver's seat. I'm in the passenger seat. And I'm just spilling to her all this stuff about what my grandma said and how confused I am about it all. And my friend sits there silently pondering for a moment. And then without even looking at me, she shrugs her shoulders and she says, stuff happens and just keeps driving as if I didn't say anything at all. And guys, I don't remember the follow-up conversation. I don't remember what happened after that. I know we still went to the mall. All I remember is how I felt in that moment because in that moment, my heart broke because my friend did not even try to enter into my pain with me. And so I know what it feels like to be burned. But I want to encourage you to um, try again. <laughs> because just because you've been burned before doesn't mean it'll keep happening to you. So don't look to be burned. Look to be surprised. Because I have been quite surprised at this church. In the past year in particular, God has given me two women who have totally taken me by surprise and been amazing friends. Women that when I share my struggle and my pain with them, they say things like, Oh, Kate, me too. I know what you mean. Or maybe they don't understand, but they try and they hug me and they say, I don't understand, but I'm here. I'll listen. I'll let you cry and I won't be awkward about it. Actually, maybe a little awkward, but I'll still let you cry. And they will send me just all these heart emojis in a text when they know I'm having a bad day or they'll speak God's truth over me. These are true friends. So don't let being burned once think that you'll keep being burned. We need to learn to trust each other. So don't withhold trust. Give it freely. And for those who are on the receiving end of that, who are being given trust, when someone shares something with you, we want to be those good friends who handle each other's suffering well. And so what does a good friend do? Well, I think a good friend listens first, they ask second, and they answer last, if at all. <laughs> So what do I mean by that? I mean that a good friend doesn't jump right into giving you advice or even trying to encourage you and tell you that your thinking about this is wrong. What they do is they listen and they just try, they just let you tell your story, let you tell them all the stuff that's going on. And then once they've done that, they ask good questions. Questions like, man, that must be really hard. Can you tell me more about that? Um, how are you feeling with all this? Where's your head at? Where's your heart? Um, you know, help me understand. Or even, what can I do for you? Would doing blank help? Can I pray for you? Ask to be invited in. Ask to understand. Ask and show that you care. And then finally, if needed, we can answer. Because after we've done all the listening and asking, we'll actually know how best to help our friend in their time of need. For Paul, the Philippians knew that he needed money, he needed food, and he needed prayer. And that's what he gave them. And their specific and calculated response to his need in his time of suffering is what gave Paul a reason to rejoice. 
So guys, let's listen first, ask second, and answer last. So first, Paul shows us that we don't have to suffer alone. And I gave you some tips on how to do that. But second, he reveals to us his secret of how he learned to be content in all circumstances. So he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, and probably the most famous verse ever quoted in the Bible, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Okay, what? Wait, that sounds too easy. Like what, Paul? All that and this is your response? Oh my goodness, Christ is my strength. That's how I make it through. It just sounds a little too easy, right? I get you. I feel you. Man, it kind of seems that way. But let me try and give you some insight into what Paul is saying here. Because for those of us who don't know Jesus, if you're out there, it does sound too easy. But if you know Jesus, I think even a little bit, if you know the guy that Paul is talking about, then you might have a little bit of an idea of what he means. Because we know that he's not talking about some magical, airy-fairy way that God will strengthen and empower us to conquer any situation, to scale a wall or ace a test or get the girl. This verse isn't about all the successes. It's not about victory and coming out on top. It is about being at your lowest of the low and still being sustained and satisfied by Jesus. It's about suffering with Jesus. Paul is saying here that Jesus is the answer in every circumstance. Jesus is the answer to how we suffer and suffer well. He's saying that it's not just the friendship of the church that has helped, them, helped him through this trial, though that was very important. Really what has strengthened him is Jesus. Because knowing Jesus and having him as a friend is worth much more to Paul than any circumstance he might find himself in. Jesus is the answer. And he is the answer because Jesus actually took the first step. He stepped down from heaven and became a human being. He entered our mess and took on our humanity. He subjected himself to human suffering, to sickness and pain, to being tired, homeless, to being rejected and tempted, and even ultimately to die for our sake. Our God, Jesus, he knows what it is to suffer. He can relate. And Paul finds comfort in that. But even more, I think he finds comfort in not only does Jesus understand our suffering, but he also overcame it. He is the one who conquered sin and death. He is life itself. Jesus is everything. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus in him is what gives him strength. That because Jesus got Paul out of the biggest problem he had, which was sin, and the biggest suffering he could ever experience, which is eternity in hell, he will also get Paul through this. Paul isn't saying that suffering is insignificant. He's not saying that it's not real. He's not just saying, oh, well, don't worry. Jesus will take care of everything. He's not even saying we should try to escape it or that we should just be happy with it. He is saying that nothing in the world is, um, can be compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And what's really cool, actually, is that this attitude didn't come easy for Paul. It's a secret. He says he had to learn 
It's not the secret of self-discipline or detachment or developing good coping strategies. It's not determination or grit or even escapism. It's a deep and intimate connection with Jesus, his source of life and hope and joy. And it's through this personal connection with Jesus that Paul can get through everything. Jesus is working in him and through him. And he is the way that Paul will learn and has learned to be content in every circumstance. He's learned from Jesus. And so in prosperity or poverty, happiness or despair, solitude or community, Paul can be content because he can do it through Jesus. So I wonder, church, do we treasure Jesus like Paul treasures Jesus? Are we pursuing unity with him? Is he our everything? Do you trust in Jesus to work through you, even in times of suffering, so that you could face all of life's difficulties? Do you trust that he can take your suffering, even when it seems meaningless and purposeless and you don't understand why, and hope that he could work through it for your good and his glory somehow, some way? If not, or maybe totally, then I want to encourage you today to pursue him more. To pursue him with everything you have. Just build a friendship with Jesus. Seek him out. Pray to him. Read his word. Talk to people who know him like you want to know him and ask them how they got that way. If you want to go deeper, then try to go deeper. We need to pursue Jesus just as much as he has pursued us. And guys, I can guarantee you that when you do, you will find that he is the most amazing, faithful, trustworthy, loving, encouraging friend you will ever have. He is worth giving your everything to. So we've learned from Paul that we don't need to suffer alone, that we can suffer with each other, but also with Jesus. And the last thing is actually that because of all this, we can pursue contentment. So contentment doesn't come first, it comes after these things. Wouldn't you like a little bit more of contentment? I know I sure would, especially in times of suffering. In a world where there's always something bigger and better and newer, wouldn't it be nice to just be chill with what we have, to the situation we're in wherever we're at? I don't even know if I know for sure what that looks like because that hasn't happened very often in my life. But a few months ago, God put a person in my life who showed me what this could look like. Um, for the past few years, I've been gathering with a few friends who are also um, love to work with kids and youth. And a couple months ago, one of them started to share a story about her husband with us. Her husband loves to evangelize and share the word of God, just like Paul. And recently, he had started to lose his voice. So that when he spoke, he couldn't speak as loudly or with much power. His voice would get hoarse very, very quickly. And they didn't know what was causing this, but a few weeks down the road, they ended up finding out that her husband actually had pretty severe lung cancer and had to go in for treatment. And so one day, all of us are gathered around uh, this friend and we're asking her, Hey, um, how can we pray for you in this situation? And do you want to know what she said? I'm going to read it for you because it's it's crazy. She said, my prayer is that my husband and I would suffer well during this time of trial. We want to be good examples to all of our mentees, especially those who are younger than us, that they will see us praise God and come to understand his goodness. We can still praise God in this storm. 
Isn't that crazy? Wouldn't you love to have that kind of attitude that even when you are undergoing such a trial that you could potentially lose one of the people you love most in the world, you have faith in God and your desire is not just to escape your suffering, but actually that God would work through you in it for the sake of others. What I learned from this friend is that often the pathway to contentment is worship. The word that she said over and over and over again is, I'm going to keep praising God. I'm praising him in this storm. I'm going to, I want everyone to see how much we praise him, how much we honor him, that they will be inspired by um, how we're responding to this suffering. And so when we adore God, when we remind ourselves of who he is, how big he is and what he's done for us, when we focus on him, our faith is bolstered. And it reminds us that we can't get through stuff on our own, but with him we can. We are reminded that there is a God out there who is fighting for us, who is our strength, and that he has given us a community of friends to share in these many troubles with us. Friends, the world needs us to share in each other's troubles. And if we take it on together with Jesus as our strength, I think that suffering, instead of isolating us, can only bring us together. Suffering could actually lead to greater unity. It could lead to deeper friendships, to feeling loved. So in a world of increasing isolation and loneliness, let's be a community that's different. Let's be a place that others who are suffering come and look for help, a place that is so committed to supporting and praying and loving one another that other people want what we have. They'll want Jesus. They'll want to be a part of this beautiful community that pursues deep faith and a wide embrace. Friends, let's be the church. Let's show the world the power of one. I'm going to invite the worship team up now and and just pray over you. Father, I just thank you um, just so much that you sent us Jesus and that we're not alone in our suffering, Lord. I thank you that he is all-powerful and can strengthen us um, and that he can be our hope in trying circumstances and help us get through. I pray, Lord, that you would give us such a vision of who Jesus is that we would pursue him wholeheartedly, Lord. I pray also that we would be open and honest with one another about where we're at and seek to share in each other's troubles. And God, I pray that we would be marked as a community of worship that we would praise you no matter our circumstances and be a community that the world can look at and see your power at work in us. See how we have learned to be content in all circumstances through Christ who strengthens us. So would you show us how to do that today, Lord, and each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.